Thanks, musicians. Uh, welcome to you. Uh, welcome to our home churches who are viewing in a week later than we're recording it. So it's not live, so we can go back and cut and edit if we need to, guys, so don't feel bad. It may happen. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are undone by your mercy to us, uh, your mercy that allowed the sun to rise this morning, uh, your mercy that's going to allow it to set uh, this evening, way too early, at 4 o'clock. Uh, still, we're thankful, uh, I guess, for, uh, for that. We're thankful that you have uh, looked at us and seen us as uh, ones who uh, are chosen by you, ones who you have, for whatever reason, said uh, that we are yours. And so this morning, Father God, we want to rest in that. We rest in that as we come uh, in a world amid the chaos uh, that we come into your sanctuary uh, and that we would find rest and hope uh, as we long uh, for you uh, to reveal yourself to us through your son, uh, reveal yourself to us through your spirit uh, and through your word as it is preached. Uh, so God, this morning, uh, I ask that you be with us. Uh, keep the hope alive that is burning in our souls, uh, burning in our hearts to see uh, and to savor the beauty that is your son, Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Um, Welcome. It's, uh, it's often been said that uh, if you want someone to know the truth, you just tell them the truth. Uh, these are just facts, right? If you want someone to know facts, you just tell them facts. Uh, but if you want someone to really love the truth, uh, you tell them a story. And that has been uh, written really into the fabric of who we are, that story holds such a captivating place in our hearts. And uh, the late pastor Eugene Peterson said that stories are acts of verbal hospitality, uh, that to really get to know someone, uh, it's often the first thing that you'll ask somebody when you see them, uh, is, hey, what's your story? Where are you from? Who are you? What are your parents like? Uh, and so stories hold such a place in our hearts and such a place kind of in who we are uh, that we can't get away from it. Uh, God has written a story. We are a part of that. Uh, my good friend Jonathan Rogers quotes C.S. Lewis often that reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Uh, that imagination really drives everything. Story drives all that we are. There's a narrative that we've written, uh, and there's a narrative being written about us. And uh, I, I would argue that that is actually what makes the Christmas season so powerful, uh, especially when it comes to Christmas, because it's a time filled with with stories, with so much nostalgia that comes in and really invades our hearts. It really sma kind of smacks us in the face with stories of our own childhood, uh, stories of Christmas's past, stories of presents that we've received, of tradition and of memory. Uh, there's an innocence that comes around Christmas. There's a joy and a longing that comes with this season of Christmas, especially in 2020, right? Um, you saw kind of all over social media, people throwing up their Christmas trees way early, and they're just saying, 2020 has been a terrible year, so we just decided to go ahead and decorate. Um, Christmas grants us this ability to hit reset. Um, life really slows down, for the most part, around this season, right? Your jobs kind of wind down, school winds down, um, you make plans to go see uh, family, you make plans to see your friends, um, and that what is what brings us to our Advent season, uh, that once Thanksgiving clears and we get the first, you know, the four Sundays between then and Christmas, 
uh, we really want to stop as a church and kind of turn our focus back to what is, what is Advent? What does it mean that the people of God are waiting on this promise of God to be fulfilled? That the people of God are waiting for God to show up. Uh, there's no other time in our calendar that is filled with such joyous anticipation. Um, we just sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing, a song that uh, is full of joy and delight and gladness. Um, and this morning, the theme of our sermon, and really the theme that we're going to go through with each week of Advent, is that we're going to take a different Christmas song, and we're just going to tell a story about it. Uh, the song that we've chosen this week is a song called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, it's old, super old song, don't know who wrote it. Don't know much about it, should have Googled it before I got up here. Um, but the, the drive, the major thrust of this song is God's people who are stuck in exile. And they're just begging for God to come. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. God's people held captive uh, politically, of course, in the Bible, but ca captive to sin. Um, captive to a world that's gone wrong, and when they're begging God, would you come? And the response that we get after those two verses, after those two lines, I don't know music, um, he comes in, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel will come to thee, O Israel. He's going to come, but it's going to take a while. Um, there's going to be some waiting involved. So this Advent season, we're going to sing the story of God. We're going to sing the story of Scripture, and we're going to hope and wish and wait together, to quote Jack Johnson, of the story of God's wild plan of redemption. That each week leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at a different song, and we're going to investigate the story, and we're going to sing it together. And it seems most fitting to start with, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because it starts with a promise that was made way back in Genesis, kind of all the way back to the front of the Bible, after the part where you write your name and who gave it to you, there's a story of how God's people have fallen and a promise made from God to Adam and Eve. They've sinned, they've sinned big, they listen to the serpent, they're getting kicked out of the garden, God's killed an animal, he's clothed them so they don't have to wear fig leaves anymore, and as they're getting sent out, he's making a promise that says to Eve, there's someone who's going to come from your line that's going to crush the head of the serpent. They were the only two people on earth at this point, Adam and Eve. And so what this means is that for everyone who has come after them, which is us, there's no one who has been born on this earth that that promise does not apply to. Uh, that God is going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent. So that's where uh, that promise starts. It's called the first gospel. It's sort of the first gospel presentation. And then it weaves all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, every king, every prophet, uh, every kind of cool dude who shows up uh, wondering, could this be the one that, the, that Genesis told us about? Could this be the one that Moses wrote about? Um, it snakes all the way through, no pun intended, through the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the book of Luke, and that's where we find ourselves this morning in the first chapter of Luke. So if you have a copy of your scriptures, uh, open with me to Luke chapter 1. It'll also be on the screens. Um, it's also on your phone uh, if you want to 
stop playing Candy Crush and look at, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. It's probably banned, like TikTok. Um, but that's where, uh, that's where we'll be. The book of Luke, we're going to be in verses 26 through 38. 38, yes. Uh, so let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. In the sixth month, the angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what the sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, And how will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together. Father God, as we dive into your word, I ask that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We've landed in Luke. Uh, it's gone through. The, the thread has run all the way through the Old Testament. And now we are at the point uh, in which an angel shows up uh, to Mary this unwed teenage mother, and she entertains this visit from the angel of God, and essentially what, what is happening here is that nothing is going to be the same. Uh, so we're going to see kind of two things and then a, a point of application this morning, the silence of God, and then the Son of God, and then a so what. Silence, Son, and so what. Um, so let's look again at Luke chapter 1, um, at the silence of God, because from the moment that Adam and Eve fell, uh, God had made a promise to his people, the promise that we had already told you about, uh, that someone who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And that's the story of every scripture, every book, every chapter, every story you remember from your time um, in like children's church, that from Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and, and Saul and Obed and David and Solomon, with every baby boy that was born, the question would have at least been considered, is this the one is this the one that God spoke about? Could this be the one who's going to restore Israel to their prominence? David sure, sure seemed like he was going to be the one to do that. Uh, he was this lowly shepherd boy. Uh, he shows up. Um, he becomes this mighty king. Uh, but we see all of David's flaws and all of David's follies. Uh, so it's not him, but we're promised that it's going to come from his line. So then Solomon's born. And Solomon is super wise, super smart, tons of money, uh, very powerful. He unites the kingdoms. He builds a big temple. Maybe he's going to be the one uh, who's going to rule over all of Israel. But Solomon has a problem, and that problem is that he loves having more than one wife way too much. And so he's not the guy who's going to save everybody. Um, and, then these, uh, and then sort of the kingdom split. Israel's in disarray, and uh, there's not a king in Israel 
and then there are all these uh, prophets start to show up. Uh, these prophets are the mouthpiece of God. The, the job of a prophet or the office of a prophet was to, uh, to reveal to God's people by word and by the Holy Spirit uh, what the plan of God was for their salvation. And so the prophets show up urging God's people to remain faithful to God, uh, reminding them that he has not forgotten you. Um, that is the promise of Scripture. If you hear nothing else this morning, God has not forgotten you. He's recalling to Israel, these prophets showing up, recalling to Israel the old, old story that God's going to send a redeemer. Uh, he's going to send someone that's going to crush the serpent's head. Israel's hoping to return to glory and prominence. They don't want to be anybody's slaves anymore. They want to have their own country. They want to have their own kingdom. And they're praying, God, remember, you told us. You would send a deliverer like Moses, who pulled them out of slavery in Egypt and led them into wilderness and eventually the promised land under Joshua. They longed for mighty kings again like David and like Solomon. And then we get to uh, God's last prophet in the Old Testament. It's got him Malachi, uh, God's messenger. And the last words in, in the last chapter of Malachi are these words that the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, that they'll go about leaping like calves, whatever that means, and families will reconcile, that, the, that fathers will turn to sons, sons will turn to their fathers, there's going to be all this peace. And even Elijah, who they love, they love stories of Elijah, Elijah will pay them a visit. And then for 400 years, God is silent. For 400 years, not a peep. For perspective's sake, they signed the Declaration 244 years ago, the Declaration of Independence. This is 400 years of silence from God, from a people who had hung their hat on being the ones who heard directly from Yahweh, directly from God. He hasn't said a word in 400 years. And they're asking, has God forgotten those who were his chosen people? Those whom God says he loves, has, has, has he ghosted them? Has God left them? 400 years of hoping is a long time to be stood up. But you know that feeling, right? You cry out to God with your prayers, and you don't hear anything back. It's like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling if you're even praying at all. God, I've followed you to Nashville, came to Belmont like you told me to. Like, what, what now? God, I took the job that I felt like I was supposed to take, and I don't like it. So what do I do now? God, you said you were going to act, but it sure seems like you're awfully quiet. The silence of God is terribly uncomfortable. Um, the, the silence of God is scary. Uh, Singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson wrote a song called The Silence of God, and in it he says, It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod. And the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Every month that passes by just reminding us of our infertility, every hangover reminding us that uh, we're powerless against our addiction, every stupid wedding announcement that comes in the mail that we have to put on the fridge because we feel bad about it, uh, reminding us that we're not getting to send out our own wedding announcements. Um, 
There were 250,000 empty chairs at Thanksgiving a couple days ago. 250,000 people dead. The sounds of the shovel hitting the dirt as a result of a virus that God has yet to eradicate. And we pray for it all the time. God, just get rid of it. Can't you do that? That Kenneth Copeland dude screamed and said it was gone, but it seems to still be here. God, can't you just get rid of this thing? The kid who doesn't come home for the holidays. Uh, the kid that we uh, just so desperately want them uh, to follow Jesus and to trust in the Lord, and they don't give a care about it. God, have you forgotten us? Or why are you silent? We all know this feeling that God has stood us up like a bad tender date. That God hasn't shown up. And Israel knows this. But Israel has forgotten something too. They've forgotten that God is never left without a witness. That regardless of how crazy things have gotten, and they've been far worse throughout history than they are in 2020. 2020 sucks, but it's been far worse before. Um, Noah and his family on the ark, as God is destroying the rest of the world around them, right? There's always a remnant. When Elijah comes to God in the Old Testament and says, God, I'm tired of working here. These people don't listen to me. Can you just kill them all? Like, just burn them all. That's nothing for you. Uh, and God responds, there are still 10,000, I think it's actually 7,000, who have yet to bow a knee to Baal. There's always a faithful remnant. And when we land in Luke chapter 1, God is still not left without his witness because in the town of Judea, there's an old lady named Elizabeth. Oh, she's older. She's like 60. My wife told me I can't say 60's old. She's not here, so I did it anyway. Um, you're not the boss of me. Um, and so Elizabeth, who's this older woman, well beyond childbearing years, is now pregnant. And when Luke is writing this story to his buddy Theophilus, he adds that in there, and he adds that in there for our benefit, and especially for the benefit of Israel, because these Jewish readers would have heard this, and they would have immediately have been transported back to the story of Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was well beyond childbearing years, so far, in fact, that she laughs at God when God tells her she's going to get pregnant. Uh, and then Rebecca, who uh, is also having trouble getting pregnant, gets pregnant and gives birth to Jacob and Esau. Hannah, who can't bear a child, who's called barren, uh, prays and prays and prays, and eventually she does and has Samuel, who she dedicates at the temple. This, this, this story of the barren woman is all throughout Scripture. And any time it happens, it means that God is moving. And so here's Elizabeth, well beyond childbearing years. She ends up pregnant, and suddenly there's going to be an like Israel's going to be a buzz about this. Um, that this lady would 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 become pregnant when she was way past the ability to do so. Um, she gets pregnant with uh, John the Baptist. It's kind of an important figure in Scripture. Uh, she's pregnant with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is great. Preaches really well. He wears weird clothes, eats weird stuff. Uh, but he's, like, he matters, but he isn't the Messiah. But God's not done. Because then he sends an angel to go pay a visit to a 14-year-old girl, probably-ish, named Mary. Um, and if you thought Elizabeth's pregnancy was going to be weird, Mary's is crazy. Um, 
And her story and our story are never the same because of it. The silence of God has been broken by the announcement that the Son of God is on the way. Israel, you've waited 400 years. Well, here it is. All those stories you've heard from people who are long dead, here it is. It's going to be our second point, the Son of God. God deploys his angel Gabriel. This is in Luke uh, 1. Uh, we see Mary uh, having a, a dialogue with Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel goes to this no-name town uh, in Galilee, this country that doesn't matter a whole lot, uh, to visit this teenage girl and to tell her, God has seen you and God knows you. Uh, this would have been great news to Mary. This is news you need to hear, that God sees you and God knows you. I hope that an angel doesn't come and tell you that you're pregnant, unless you just really want to be. Um, but God sees you and God knows you. To think of how crazy this scene would have been uh, for this little girl, who's she's engaged to be married to uh, a guy named Joseph who works hard, he's a carpenter, nice guy. Um, but they haven't slept together yet. Um, and so this angel shows up and says, Mary, you don't know me. My name is Gabriel. Uh, I come on behalf of God, and I'm here to tell you that you're going to get pregnant. Um, and then Mary responds the way that we all would respond, but Lord, I'm a virgin. Uh, how's this going to happen, Gabriel? That's impossible. Um, and then Gabriel tells her, it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit's going to come into you, and you're going to get pregnant, and you're going to give birth in nine years. Nine years, that's a long labor. Uh, in nine months. You're going to give birth. It's like she's an elephant. You're going to give birth in nine months. It's going to take a long time. This is going to be hard. It's going to hurt. It's going to turn your world upside down. This is crazy. It's crazy to think that, that this is what God, this is the plan he's launched. He doesn't go to Rome he doesn't go to Cairo. He doesn't go to Athens. He doesn't go to powerful cities to say, hey, this is where Jesus is going to be from. Instead, he goes to Mary and little Galilee and, and Nazareth, which is just this sort of, it's just sort of a whatever place. Like, it's not that important. There would have been nothing powerful there. Jesus is mocked later on in his life for being from there. Um, that there's nothing that is that attractive about being from where he's from. It would be as if, like if this happened today. I came to you and said, hey, listen up, y'all. Uh, the Son of God is here. The King of the world is here. All those things that you long for, those things that you're dying, like the sins that are crushing you, uh, the desires that you have, all those things are going to be met and fulfilled finally by this baby that was born in a Waffle House bathroom in the middle of central Alabama. Like, no offense to Waffle House, all offense to central Alabama, none to Waffle House. I mean, Waffle House is great. It's just not that, like, it's just not that impressive. Like, we wouldn't think, oh, yeah, that's, that, that seems like where Jesus would be born. Um, there's, there's nothing particularly impressive about Mary except that God looks at her and says, I know you, and I choose you, I see you. Um, because of that, our stories matter. Our stories matter to God because he sees us. And Mary responds to the angel by saying, then let it be. Like, I'm on board. Uh, I will do this. I'll carry this baby in my belly. I'll feel him kick. I'll give birth to him in a barn. 
I'll, I'll teach them how to walk, and I'll teach them how to write. Um, I'll raise the Son of God because God has seen me and because God knows me. She, she would have known uh, what is written and prophesied by Isaiah, Isaiah that he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God keeps his promises, y'all. God has not forgotten his people. He has said once again, I'm going to dwell with them. I'm going to be Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be with his people just like he was in the tabernacle of old, just like he was in the temple. And he's coming again, but this time the tabernacle is going to move. It's going to have a face and arms. That he's going to come in John chapter 1 and says, literally, he tabernacles among us. That God comes to be with his people. Think of how crazy this is. That on Christmas morning, when we're up, like, checking our stockings and getting mad that somebody put fruit in there. Like, who puts an orange in a stocking, mother-in-law? Who does this? That when we are at Christmas morning, what happened on that first Christmas morning, one writer says, is this. Joseph and Mary thought of the angels who visited their dreams. They thought of Adam and Eve taking the forbidden fruit in Genesis and how one of the consequences of that act of rebellion was the pain shooting through Mary from head to toe. The pain shooting through Mary every three minutes, swept up in waves of pain and contraction, Mary continued to push and breathe and strain while all the time passed. Eventually, as if cresting a ridge, her labor gives way to delivery, and her groaning gives way to the sound of the cries and the coos of little lungs, drawing in the breath of earth for the first time. They beheld him, though he was the son of God, was every bit a fragile and tiny baby. The story of salvation from mankind, authored by God and accomplished by Jesus, is laying here wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger because there wasn't any room for them at the end, God has not forgotten the promise he made. Because of the incarnation, because of the birth of Jesus, incarnate, in flesh, God coming in flesh as Jesus, Jesus the Son of God coming, hope was alive. The silence of God that had happened those 400 years is gone. Because Jesus is here. The silence of God that you feel right now, Jesus is here. The promise, he has not left you, he has not forgotten you. And you may be asking, so what? What does any of this mean? Um, I'm not Mary, and angels never visited me. I think Christmas kind of sucks. Like, I don't like going home to my parents. I don't like going home to my family. It's too crazy. There's too much going on. Uh, you don't know the pain that Christmas brings me. You don't know the pain of the loneliness that I feel in this season. You don't know the pain of seeing birth announcements and hearing a story uh, that a baby is born. You don't know that pain. And I don't. I know a little bit of it. Um, but I can't pretend to know that. But, I, but what Scripture tells us with the birth of Jesus is that God does. And God knows it. And God is working through it. And he's going to take that pain and he's going to make something good that comes from it. And because Jesus is here, 
And because Jesus is God with us, then your story matters. Your story matters. Your story is woven together with every Christian that has ever confessed the name of Jesus. Your story matters if you belong to Jesus. He knows about the longings. He knows about the empty seats at the table. He knows about the empty places in your heart. He knows about the parts of your story where you long for redemption. And the birth of Jesus is the guarantee that he has not forgotten you. And the birth of Jesus is the guarantee that God is going to break into those stories, that Jesus Christ is going to break through into your story, and that life will not be the same, and that we can't go back to the way things were. We can't go back to the way things were after Jesus breaks in, that when the, that when the angel announced his birth, a worldwide revolution was launched against sin and against death. And he's launching a revolution into your own story, that Satan's head will be crushed, and that the prison that we find ourselves in, uh, the prison of our own self-pity, the, the prison of our own self-doubt, uh, the prison that we find ourselves in of just hoping someone approves of us, that someone would see us, uh, Jesus breaks into that and he flattens it all because the theme in all these stories that we have is that we need someone to come in and do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. The Christmas story goes way beyond the fact that Jesus came as a baby. Like, we do love that. It's very important. Uh, but he doesn't stay a baby. It's like Talladega Nights when he prays to little baby Jesus. Like, he was a man. He had a beard. Like, he grows up. And uh, when, he's, when he launches his ministry at age 30 and he runs into his cousin John the Baptist, who was also a miracle baby himself, whose mom was super old, he runs into John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, Behold, the son, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That's him. Israel, everything you've hoped for, Midtown, everything you hoped for is right there. It's Jesus who has come to take away the sins of the world. Because those things that we hope for, like the stupid masks on our face, and we just want to be gone. And we can start the, like this famine of touch that we're in. We just want it to be over. We want to go visit our grandparents. We want people to quit yelling. Like we want Facebook to be fun again. All those things that we long for really stop short of what we're actually longing for. Because here's the thing. God could get rid of the virus. We could get rid of the masks. We could do all that. We're still going to long for something. Elliot said this at the opening. We're all waiting for something. What our hearts really want and what our hearts need is to look and see Jesus as the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sins of the world. That we look and see that Jesus has an agenda for your life. Jesus wants to make you like him. Right? Agendas aren't bad. Bad agendas are bad. Like, it's good to have an agenda. It's good that Jesus has one. He has one for us to say, I'm going to make you like me. And I'm going to make you acceptable to God. And my blood is going to cover you. That I'm going to march to a cross and be hung on a tree that I planted by people that I created. And I'm going to subject myself to that for you. That your story can change, that I can come in and invade your space, and that hope is still alive as long as we're breathing. That there's only two places where hope is dead. You know this, right? There's two places that hope is dead. One's in hell, where hope is abandoned completely. 
and the other is in heaven where hope is realized fully. So as long as we're here, we're going to sit together and sing and hope and wish and wait uh, for the coming of Jesus again, that we'll all be fulfilled by the Son of God, that He will come and make us new, uh, that He will come and rewrite our stories, and that He will knit us together, that we wait and hope and sing of the one who will come and do something about the racial unrest that we feel, that He'll come and do something about the injustice that occurs, that He'll come and do something about the injustice that was done to you, that there's somewhere in your story that your shalom was shattered. There's somewhere that the, the peace that you knew was, 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 was blown up. And everything in the blast radius has been affected. This affects how you relate to each other. It affects how you relate to yourself. Jesus is going to say, I'm going to come in. I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with us. I want to come in. And I'm going to set up a picnic lunch, and we're going to crack up in a bottle of bourbon or wine or Kool-Aid or whatever you want. And we're going to sit and we're going to talk about this. That Jesus has come and said, I will change your story. I will make you new. Friends, God keeps his promises. There's an empty manger. There's an empty cross. There's an empty tomb. And there's an occupied seat in heaven that guarantees us that God has not forgotten us. It guarantees you that God has not forgotten you, that he will return to gather his people once again. So as we look and sing about the first advent and we're waiting on the second one, we can sing the words of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we'll sing here in just a second. Um, we can sing these words. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. It should be miserai. Songs are supposed to rhyme. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Get us to heaven. Get us to when you return. Close the path of sin and death and misery and shame and heartbreak. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray together. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we are uh, we're undone by such a promise, we're scared by such a promise, uh, that you would be so committed to us, uh, that you would send your Son, uh, that we were so bad that it had to happen, uh, but that he loved us so much that he willingly did it, uh, that you would send your Son uh, to invade our world and invade our space, um, and invade our stories, and, and to tell us, I see you, and I have chosen you, um, and I'm here to make things right. Father God, as we go on uh, singing for the rest of the service, uh, fill our hearts with that hope. Uh, fill, Holy Spirit, our lungs with the breath to sing back in praise to you uh, that you are a great God, uh, and that we are your people. And that we long for you. Come, O come, Emmanuel. And you tell us, rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Father God, would you be so kind as to do this? And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.